Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Morning, church. Would you please open your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Romans? We're going to look at verses 26 and 27 this morning. Before we do that, let me set the stage with this. Romans chapter 8, Paul opens up by making a great statement, by setting forth a great propositional truth related to the Christian life. He says in the first verse of the 8th chapter that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then what he does, I believe through the rest of the chapter, is that he validates the truth of that statement over and over and over again. That the one who has accepted Christ as their Savior placed their faith in Christ, in Christ alone, that individual is baptized into Christ. Christ's death and resurrection becomes theirs, and never again can they pass into a state of condemnation before God. And the way that he begins to validate that is he talks about the role and the functions of the Holy Spirit related to the Son and the Daughter of God. Let me just show you where we have come down through these verses in the 8th chapter that validate that. Verse 2, Paul writes that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. It's the law that condemns unto death, spiritual death, eternal death. But what the Spirit does, it sets us free from that law. It takes us out of the condemnation of that law. Verse 4, Paul writes in verse 4 that the Spirit helps the follower, the son or the daughter of God to fulfill the just requirements of the law. Verse 6, The Spirit gives life and peace to the Son and the daughter of God. Not condemnation unto death, but life and peace with God. Verse 11, Paul says that the Spirit of God is the one who raised Jesus up from the dead. And that very same Spirit, if you're a son or daughter of God, is going to raise you up from the dead. Death is not even going to be your victor. The grave is not going to hold you because the Spirit of the living God is going to raise you from the dead. Verse 13. In the meantime, while you live this Christian life, what the Spirit does within the Son and the daughter of God is that it helps you put to death the deeds of the body. The sinful tendencies that are still ours in this Life, though we are saved and seated with God 
the very right hand of God with Christ, we are still in this mortal body with a propensity to sin. And yet what the Spirit does is He works in power to help us say no to that, to put to death those motions of sin in our lives. Verse 14, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Not led into condemnation. The Spirit will not lead you into condemnation. He leads you into the will of God, into the purposes of God. Verse 15 and 16. Paul makes the great statement there that what the Spirit does in the Son or the daughter of God is it bears witness with their spirit that yes, in fact, they are sons and daughters of God. They are not enemies of God. They are not under the wrath of God in His condemnation. They are sons and daughters of God. Under His grace and His blessing, verse 23, Paul says that the Spirit within the Son and the daughter of God is a foretaste, is a first fruit. You know what a first fruit is? It's the first taste and the guarantee that the harvest is coming. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that what has begun is going to come into its fullness in the future that God has for the son and the daughter of God. Guaranteed. The first fruit is the guarantee of the full harvest. So in all of those ways, Paul has been unpacking and validating and highlighting and driving the truth deeper and deeper into the conviction of his readers that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ because of all of these things that the Spirit of God does in and for them. And then he comes down to verses 26 and 27 and he gives us yet another thing that the Spirit of God does that validates the truth of the great proposition of verse 1. No condemnation. Let's read those two verses. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we come to that word likewise, what that tells us is Paul is continuing to teach us just like he has been teaching us throughout this chapter. And he's been teaching us about the workings of the Spirit of God and how they keep the follower, the son or the daughter of God in a place of peace with God and not in a place of condemnation. That our future glory is forever and eternally secure. And what specifically does he say that the Spirit does here? Let's begin with this. He says that the Spirit helps us. Just pause right there for a minute. The Spirit helps us. That word in the Greek that is translated in the English as helps is three words in the Greek. Three distinct words with three distinct meanings. And here is what they picture. Best way I think I can explain it is by just painting a scenario for you. It pictures 
A man that is under a burden. He is weighted down. He cannot carry or lift or navigate with the burden. And along comes another one beside him. And that one that comes along stops and stoops down and puts his shoulder next to the shoulder of the one that cannot handle the burden and lifts with him so that the two of them together can lift the burden and navigate and move forward. Notice in that picture that the one that comes along to help does not take the burden completely away from the one that is carrying it so that the newcomer has it all himself. No, he stoops and joins with the one that is under the burden and he puts his energy and power to that which is already being exerted and the two of them together bear the burden. That is what Paul is referring to here, the word picture that's being painted in the Greek when he says the Holy Spirit helps us. And specifically, what does he help us with? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let's look closely at that word for a minute. This is not Paul referring to a specific sin in the individual's life. Something specific that they did and because of that they are weak in that situation. This is a statement that is referring to infirmity, a general weakness. Now it is true that we can trace all weakness back to the fall. That when Adam and Eve sinned and that curse came upon humanity, we became weak because of that. Physically weak, emotionally, spiritually, relationally weak because of that. It's a general reality of our infirmity. It really means literally this, not strength or without strength. The Holy Spirit helps us with our non-strength. So it is something that as all infirmity could could lead to sin, but it's not sin specifically. It's just the reality of the human condition that we're weak. Now, we're going to talk about specifically what our weakness is. But notice what the context of it is right here in this verse. It's about prayer. The context in which Paul says that we're weak is related to prayer. So that the issue here is a spiritual one. Prayer is a spiritual exercise. Prayer is a spiritual uh, activity. So we are weak Paul says, in the area of prayer, in our human infirmity. Because of the reality of our human condition, we are weak in prayer. Now, let me just, let me just try to 
drop this into your heart or into your mind. You're not going to understand the greatness of the promise that Paul gives here about the Spirit unless you understand the great place that prayer plays in the Christian life. For you to understand how great the promise is that we're going to look at, you're going to need to understand the priority position that prayer should play in your life as a Christian. It is your connection to God. It is your relationship. It's your dialogue from God in a way that you hear from God. I think we could say fairly accurately that prayer is our greatest need, the sons and daughters of God. But then I think quite often we could say on the other side of the coin this, that prayer is our greatest weakness. Far too often, prayer is our greatest weakness. So in the midst of our greatest need and our greatest weakness comes the greatest help, the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is telling us here. So let's look a little deeper now. What specifically is the weakness that we have in prayer? In our human condition, in our infirmity, what is the weakness that we have in prayer? Paul says it like this, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. He is being very specific in identifying the condition of our human reality and our infirmity related to prayer and that weakness is that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now let's just draw some implications from that for a minute. What does he mean there? I think we could say with great confidence that there are many things in the Word of God that God has told us are His will that we should pray for. Would you agree with that? There are many things in the Word of God that God has said, here is my command. Here is what I want for you. Here are things that you can and should be praying about. I think that is unquestionably true. I'm going to call those the general will of God. Let's just state a couple of realities about the general will of God for us as sons and daughters of God. Can somebody just shout one out? Love your neighbor. neighbor. Jesus said a new command I've given to you. Right? That's a command. We know that's the will of God. We shouldn't be in the dark about that. That's not one of those we do not know what to pray for as we ought, right? We should know that. Do we have another one? (laughs) I like that. Pray for your pastor. (laughs) I mean, I give you an example there. Paul regularly said, man, I want you to be praying for me. Pray that when I open my mouth that I proclaim the truth as I should. You need to be praying that for me. Anything else? Pray for your rulers, government authorities. Be holy. Be holy. As I am holy, God said. 
We know that a will, the will of God for us, every one of us, sons and daughters of God, is to become like who? Become like Jesus Christ. We are to grow up into all the fullness, to the full stature of the measure of Christ. We need to pray about those things. Those are the revealed will of God, the general moral will of God for us. And there are a lot of things that we could put in that category. So that cannot be what Paul is talking about here when he says we do not know what to pray for as we ought. As we look closely into what Paul says, particularly in the Greek language, we get a clue at what he means here. Because in the Greek, before the word that is translated what in the English is the definite article. Meaning, literally, it should be read like this. For we do not know the what that we should pray for. Meaning, that in the circumstances of life, the specific circumstances in life, in our human weakness, because of our infirmity, we do not know the specific things in the specific circumstances of life that are the will of God so that we don't know how to pray precisely the will of God in the midst of those circumstances. A part of our weakness in prayer is that that is true of us. Let me give you a little context here. What Paul has just been writing about in the verses right before verse 26 and 27 in verses 18 to 25 is about suffering. So here is the way that it works for us far too often. And when I say us, I mean me first and foremost. The way that it works is that we go through hardships, trials, sufferings, difficulties, and immediately in our weakness, we get confused about the will of God and we pray, God, take the pain away. God, take the hardship away. Take the trial away. And we can pray, fervently and passionately about that. The question I am presenting this morning is, do we know if that is the will of God for us in that specific circumstance? Well, I think we can find some clues to that answer. Here's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews. He learned obedience through what he... Can you finish it? Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Man, if Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered in the flesh, what about the need for you and I to learn obedience through the things that we suffer, through the hardships, through the trials? And God is committed to our obedience radically committed because he knows that's the place of safety, that's the place of blessing. So that maybe the difficulties at times in our life are actually the very tools of God to accomplish the will of God for us. But in our humanity, what can happen and what frequently happens is that we immediately default and we 
impose our will into the request, assuming that it must also be the will of God. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know the what we ought to pray for. You know, that specific will of God, not the general will, but this specific will of God that we're talking about, do you know that there, if you are in that place of weakness and confused at times about that, you're walking a track that has been walked by the most renowned saints of history. Let me just drop a couple of names about Jonah. The great prophet Jonah, the preacher that arguably preached a message that brought about the greatest revival of history as far as success. Jonah was sent by God to preach to the city of Nineveh to repent. He didn't want to go, but he went and preached. Didn't have a whole lot of a choice in the matter, but he went and preached. Got a one-way ticket there by a large fish, and then he preached his message and went and sat on the hill, and this plant grew up to shade him, and then God sent a scorching east wind that killed the plant. And listen to what Jonah did. Jonah 4.8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Was Jonah praying the will of God when he prayed that? God, would you just take me out? It's better for me to die than to live. Do you know that Elijah prayed, prayed the same prayer? had the mighty event on Mount Carmel where he called down the fire of heaven and defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. And then he ran from a woman, Jezebel, to the backside of the desert and in the cave, hiding out over there. He said, oh God, it'd be better if I just die. Take me out. That's foolish prayer. He wasn't in the will of God. He was in the weakness of his humanity when he was confused about the will of God and he prayed that prayer. It was not the will of God. How about the great Apostle Paul, the the author of the letter that we are reading, the one who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, the great Apostle who gave us a lot of the teaching that we do understand about prayer. Did he ever get confused? Was he included in the weakness? Well, let me just give you his own words. Notice right here in this verse, Paul says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Who's included in the we? The author is included in the we. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's a detailed account. Paul was given an incredible revelation. Caught up to paradise. Saw things, heard things that man was not allowed to utter. And then he said, because I received that great revelation, then I also received something else. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 10. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn has given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. Do you see what he's doing? He gets the hardship. He gets the thorn. He doesn't yet understand. The great apostle Paul doesn't yet understand why the thorn's there. And for three times, three seasons, he pleads. That's a passionate word. He pleads with God to remove the thorn, to remove the trial, the hardship, the pain. And then he gets a clue. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, I'm doing something here that you don't understand. That is actually for me. And what's happening is, is that I am protecting you. Protecting you from yourself, from pride. And I'm keeping you in a place of humility, which is power. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See what Paul does here? Paul in his human weakness did not know the what he ought to pray for. And in his weakness, he prayed for the wrong thing. And he did it passionately and he did it for three seasons. And then he found out that he wasn't praying for the right thing. That in fact, he was praying for something that was not God's will. And against something that was God's will. We are weak because of our infirmity. We are spiritually weak and we do not know the what that we ought to pray for, particularly in the hard times of life. We can get confused about what it is that we are to be praying for. Let me just talk for a second about the other side of that, about special guidance, those times when God does give you specifically information about his will. There are biblical examples to back that up, and there are examples from my own life that I'll just use a couple of those. Again, what I'm talking about here is when you are given from the Spirit of God clarity on what the will of God is, that's something to pray about. And that happens at times. I'll give you three standout uh, times in my life uh, related to a kind of a similar uh, subject matter. When I was 25 or 6 years old, I was approached about being the youth pastor here at this church. I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted, I wanted to just do exactly what Jonah did. And in a moment, to my wife and I, kneeling on an old 
in front of an old green couch the other side of town. God just spoke into our hearts and says, I want you to take this job. Several years later, I was still struggling with not the job, but I was wanting, passionately wanting to know if God was calling me to full-time Christian ministry as a, as a life call. <clears throat> and again, I wasn't interested. I was pretty opposed. And so I locked myself in a room here at the church and I was adamant that I was staying in that room until God gave me an answer. And when I got hungry, I came out of the room with no answer. But while I was there praying, no one knew, including my wife, but God answered the prayer. I was crying in a very powerful way to my wife who had no idea that I was praying the moment I was praying. God in that moment revealed when I found that out, he told us by doing that what his will was. Then I could pray with passion and conviction and confidence because the will of God had been revealed. And then a few years later, whether to take this position as lead pastorate. And I, again, was viewing that with great trepidation. And I wrote three very specific requests in my journal that I wanted an answer to before I would move forward with that. And God, in three specific sequential verses, like he took a pen and wrote in my journal, he answered those requests, and then I was still unsure, and I said, God, I want a confirmation. You gave Gideon a fleece opportunity to confirm, and I'm asking you for a fleece. I'm asking you to confirm this, even though it was like the writing on the wall, I'm asking you to confirm this for me. And he did precisely that with three different individuals who approached me on one day, sequentially, one, two, three, that had no idea what I was doing, what I was praying, what my questions were, that spoke directly to me and answered those three specific questions as if they had read my journal, just approached me and stated the answer and left. Those situations like that when the special will of God is revealed. Not, I'm not just saying that because that's about a calling into ministry. God, all, if you're a believer, you're supposed to be in ministry. Do you know that? You're supposed to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ if you're a follower of Christ. Right? Every member is a minister. Every child of God, son and daughter, is to be ministering for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. And at times, 
the Spirit of God will give you special revelation. He will let you know what the will of God is in a specific situation or set of circumstances. Then you can pray with great conviction and confidence because God has revealed his will to you. I'll give you one biblical example of that. It's in Acts chapter 3. This is Peter and John going up to the temple. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. That That was a daily event. That man was laid at the temple gate daily. Peter and John regularly went to the temple. They had passed that man many times, but this day, this day was different, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John. This day, something happened. The Spirit of God arrested them, stopped them, and commissioned them and said, that man right there, you are to heal that man. I'm absolutely convinced that's the inference here in the Greek. And when they had the commission by the Spirit of God, then confidently they could do this. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took the man by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. That's a moment when the will of God was revealed. And Peter and John absolute confidence knowing that they were doing precisely what God had said to do, acted and the power was released. They didn't do that on the other days when they passed that man. Why? Because God hadn't said to them, I'm healing him today. Now I say that because we've got to be careful, talk more about this at the end, we've got to be careful that we don't get presumptuous here. We don't begin to claim, right? We don't try to manipulate and tell God what He's going to do. He's God. But when He reveals it, then walk in it in confidence. And specifically now, what does Paul say that the Spirit of God does? How does He help us in our weakness when we do not know the what that we should pray for? He writes that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us. That means He pleads our case to the Father. He dwells in us and He knows all about our weakness. And when we do not know the what that we should pray for, the Spirit 
intercedes for us. He pleads our case to the Father. There is such a powerful, powerful truth in that statement. Let me just show it to you. Consider the incredible promise. Who is it that's praying? It's the Holy One who's interceding. It's the Holy One. It's the one that has every right and access to the Holy God because He is the Holy God. He's the Holy Spirit who is God. Secondly, He's not just holy, He's omniscient. The Holy Spirit has all of the attributes of the Godhead. He knows all things. So in every situation, in every circumstance, he knows precisely what it is that is needed. Specifically, he knows what the will of God is. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here you have the Holy One who is omniscient, who perfectly knows, comprehensively knows what the will of God is. Not just the general will, but the specific individual will for you in every circumstance as a son or a daughter of God. And what he does in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of those circumstances where you don't know, you have the holy omniscient one praying for you according to the will of God. Listen, that is a prayer that God is going to answer. It's a prayer according to the will of God being offered by the Holy One who is God Himself and God's going to answer the prayer of God. So the promise for you, the promise for you is in direct line with what Paul has been doing all the way down through the 8th chapter of Romans. He started off by saying, there's no condemnation. You're secure in who you are in Christ. And then he begins to prove it by saying, here's what the Spirit does. Here's what the Spirit does. Here's what the Spirit does. And he gets to verses 26 and 27, and he says, you have the Holy Spirit interceding on your behalf with the Father, and he is holy and perfect in his prayers, knowing fully and precisely the will of God, and God is going to answer those prayers, and that Spirit is committed to you being like God wants you to be. Therefore, the promise is this. You're not going to pass into condemnation ever again. God's going to move you forward on the road that he has started you on. He's going to continue the process of sanctification and he's going to take you all the way to glory forever. That's the guarantee. Another validation of the truth of Romans 8.1 through another work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So let me close with this. Hopefully, you are greatly encouraged by that truth. You have the Holy Spirit interceding, pleading your case to the Father, and you have the Son of God seated at the right hand of the Father who is interceding for the saints how are you going to lose? 
So be encouraged. But secondly, what should you do? What should you do? The Word of God is meant to be understood so that it can be applied, so that it can be obeyed. What should you do? I'm going to give you a few things. First of all, pray. Pray. Now, that sounds a little counterintuitive. I have had this conversation with individuals in my years of ministry, followers of Christ, that went something like this. Pastor, if God already knows what we're going to pray before we even ask Him, and if the prayers that we pray are actually initiated by God. The prayers that we pray, at least according to His will, are actually initiated and moved by the Spirit to pray those prayers. I absolutely believe that's true. Matter of fact, I believe that's a part of what Paul is talking about here. But then thirdly, if those prayers are ultimately that are motivated by the Spirit to pray are ultimately, initially from the Father. So the Father is giving the request to the Spirit and then the Spirit impresses upon the son or the daughter to pray. Why in the world do we need to pray? God's doing this whole thing. Why do we even need to be involved? Let's just trust that God is going to do what God is going to do. He's going to do it anyway. So why do you even pray? I think that's... Faulty biblical reason. Here's why. First of all, you're commanded to pray. The Bible is really clear. Pray. Matter of fact, it says pray continually. We desperately need to be praying. Jesus lived that example. He got up early as was his custom to go to a solitary place and pray, Scripture says. Jesus said, when you pray, this is how you should pray. What's the implication? You need to be praying. We are commanded to pray. You see, it works like this. Not only does God determine the ends, what he's going to do ultimately, he also determines the means to the end. Both of those are true of God. He not only determines what he's going to accomplish, but he also determines how that's going to be accomplished. And the way that he has set in place the means to the end of your growth, of God's will being fulfilled in your life, one of the key components of that is that you pray. God has chosen that as a means toward his already determined end. So we don't cut out the middle and say, God's just going to take care of the end. No, we line up with the predetermined plan of God for the middle too, for the means toward the end. And that means is prayer. And that leads me to the second thing. The reason we need to pray is because prayer is a sanctifying process in our life. Prayer changes us. Prayer 
changes us. Prayer helps us to grow into the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the sanctifying means of prayer in our life. We desperately need it. It is our greatest need. And at the same time, as I said earlier, one of our greatest challenges. As a matter of fact, if, I don't know that this is true, but it's got to be at the top of the list if it's not on the top of the list. One thing that the enemy doesn't want you to do, he doesn't want you to pray. He does not want you to pray. He doesn't want you to humble yourself and show your dependence upon God. He doesn't want you to call down the power of God in prayer because the power of God defeats him every time. So we're commanded to pray. That's a part of the means to the end. Prayer sanctifies us. Number two, is the third truth about prayer. It's always good to pray the general will of God. Always good. Pray about becoming more like Jesus. Pray about helping God, helping you to love your neighbor. Pray about the power to witness for the person of Jesus Christ. All those commands that we know are the will of God. I mean, you had a lot of, of prayer bullet points right there if you just spent your time on those. And then finally, what about when you're facing a specific situation and in your human weakness you do not know the what that you ought to pray for? How do you approach that? I think you need to approach that carefully, reverently, humbly, Let me give you the extreme on the other end. Don't come to God and claim something. Don't come to God and tell Him He's going to do something for you because it says this. That's not the position we are in with God. We come and we request. We come and we humble ourselves. We come knowing that God's ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are above the earth. We come humbly. And we present our request to Him. And even in the making of the request, be asking God to help you understand what His will is and realize that maybe at times the struggles that someone is facing or that you are facing could be the very thing that God is using to do a good work in you. So come humbly, carefully when you pray about those things. But be confident in this, that when we do not know the what that we are to pray for, that there is a Holy One who lives within every son and every daughter of God. And that Holy One is omniscient. 
and that omniscient one knows perfectly the exact will of God in every circumstance, and he is absolutely radically committed to pleading your case related to that request in that situation. So have the confidence, even when you don't see it or feel it, that the God of heaven is for you as a son or a daughter of God, and he's committed to praying you through every situation until he completes the full redemption in glory for you. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, I'm just submit what has been said to the workings of your Holy Spirit. Take your truth was accurately divided and accurately proclaimed and plant it deep in our hearts that help us to understand to see rightly how dependent we are we don't I know I speak for me not anybody else here I don't understand how desperately I need you. How desperately I need your spirit every moment of every day. But I thank you that you're committed to never leave your sons and daughters, to never forsake them, to never condemn them. And to carry on the good work that you begin in them all the way to glory. Thank you. But help us, God, help me, help us to bear that burden with the Holy Spirit to do our part in carrying the burden of prayer as we cooperate with what He is doing for your glory in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.